0: This presentation was from York's Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Actually,
1: all the way from Italy and California and London. Um, very, very pleased to have Alberta join us today, um, closing out the afternoon for us and closing out day one in, in Ballroom B. Please join me in welcoming Alberta to the stage. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm fully aware that I'm standing between you and a drink, so I'll try to speak as quickly as possible and get you through this and off to your evenings. But before we get to the future, which is a cold pint in front of you, we're going to step back to December 15, 2004. How many of you here in this room remember what they were doing on December 15, 2004? Nobody, right? I do, and I do remember that because I was driving to work. I lived in California at the time, like Steve said. I was driving to work, and I had a big pile of um, DVDs on the seat of my car. And I was some of them I had watched, but there was one that I had not watched. And I was really, really concerned because I was about to get hit with late fees from Blockbuster, and this is a pain that we've all been through. I see some people smiling. They know what it was. So, because I didn't want to rack up a huge bill like I had done in the past, uh, it would be about five years before I would become familiar with this scene.
0: Okay. Um, I'm not sure. Um. For relaxing times, make it some toy time. Um, I'll
1: have a lot of time. So this is lost in translation, of course. Um, Something else got lost on that day. Um, Actually, Blockbuster that day announced that they were doing without their late fees, except that would kick off only until um, the uh, would kick off the following year. Uh, someone else was clearly as upset as I was. Uh, his name is Reed Hastings, and you may recognize him because on that day, he decided to found, um, to found his own company called Netflix, which would never have late fees. And you've all uh, you know, been part of the history uh, that's expressed in this graph, which is uh, Blockbuster is no more. Uh, as of 2009, they ceased activity. Uh, Netflix clearly is doing a lot better. If this graph were, this stops at 2009 when uh, Blockbuster officially shut down. But if we were to look at the trend today, uh, Netflix would be at about 5,500% growth from that day, which is huge. So what, what happened there? Why did two companies that essentially did the same thing enabling people to watch, to get entertainment at home, um, have such radical fu- uh, radically different futures. Thing is that Netflix survived because they designed themselves for evolution. Blockbuster got stuck in the past. And evolution, for all of us who are in design, is the name of what we do every day, except we call it transformation. How many of you work in transformation, digital transformation, do transformation products? Quite a number of hands, right? So transformation happens because organizations uh, become successful. They have things that they do, products that they sell, services that they provide, and they develop a market. And then all of a sudden, someone else comes along, and it's generally a small, strappy outfit. It could be a person. It could be what we call a startup. It could be a number of things. And they have an idea on how to do the same thing that the big company does at a fraction of the cost and probably with better results. That's because they have no legacy infrastructure. They don't have a CFO that's dead set on doing things in a certain way. But they are... Uh, actually able to be more agile and react to market demands a little quicker. So traditionally the big corporation doesn't worry because they think, oh they're just niche, they only do a part of what I do or they're, uh, you know, I really should not worry about that until it becomes too late. Now we we all look at examples of company that failed to innovate because they couldn't foresee the future. The reality is that there are a lot of examples of companies that foresaw the future and did not act on it. Uh, One prime example is Kodak. So believe it or not, Kodak, who right now kind of doesn't exist anymore other than in the memories of the Instagram logo, um, Kodak invented the digital camera in 1975. They had a technology to make images appear on a screen before they were impressed on a film in 1975. The first digital cameras came out in the 90s, so 20 years ahead of time. What happened was that when this technology was developed, they also commissioned a study asking... um, Because they wanted to find out when that technology would be marketable and what if... um, specialists thought that it would be a viable uh, way for photography going forward. So the study returned to the chief of marketing, whose name was uh, Barabba, uh, and uh, the the study returned a really um, dual result. It was bad news, yes, film is going to be dead in the future. Good news is that you have about 10 years to get ready for it, um, the really upsetting thing was that um, the reaction to, uh, despite the study, the reaction to the invention of uh, the digital camera from the execs at Kodak was like, "Oh, a filmless camera, that's cute." So. Eventually, Kodak ended up producing, launching the first digital camera on the market in 1996. The um, Kodak Advantix, it allowed people to see into the future, and it had this beautiful display. It was a color display, actually, that allowed you to preview the photos, which is what customers really wanted, except it printed on film. And it was a major flop and the first step into the demise of Kodak. Now, uh, any story, any, um, any, um, any one of the similar stories can be explained using a mathematical model. See some faces falling? I'm not going to use numbers. Uh, the mathematical concept of local optimum is what most organizations that transform do. And that means looking at changing things by um, staying in your own immediate neighborhood is what we would call optimization. By staying in your immediate neighborhood and improving on solutions, technologies, ideas that you're already exploiting, you're never going to go into... The, uh, you're never going to explore and exploit the full realm of possibilities that that's given by what's outside of your area of expertise. Now, um, clearly, uh, optimization versus transformation are you know are, are situations that we deal with uh, every day. The reason why most companies choose optimization. Is because optimization allows you to get results really quickly. When you are, um, you know, uh, when you are transforming something, and you are an executive who has a bonus that depends on your ability to achieve results, transformation, which means looking outside of what you know. Eventually, making a departure from your um, you know, business model, from your product line, to look into uncharted territory does not guarantee the same results. And you cannot apply um, process. And process is one of those incredibly seductive elements of doing work because it guarantees results straight away. And those are controlled results. So... What do we do in our organizations these days we call it digital transformation and it's not you know it's not inaccurate but really it's optimization by way of trans- of turning things into digital things. So when we think about our clients when we think say about the government uh, in certain places we've heard uh, a number of examples around government transformation services transformation it's really generally it starts with we have this process that's on paper how can we put it on the web now it's not that organizations aren't don't care about the customer It's not that they don't want to transform in fact when an organization starts they're full of hope and promise and they really want to do um, they want to do right by their constituencies What happens, though, is that the more they get entrenched in their community, the more they have responsibilities toward their their stakeholders, the more risk averse they become, The, the more they're afraid of failing. And we all know that it's only by failing and learning from our failures that we can really change things moving ahead. And to be completely honest, modern management techniques are not really helping us transform anything. We follow, um, we we tend to follow models that are fairly set. And so when we look at transformation initiatives in the industry, there are three main archetypes that every organization I know of, I've seen follow. The first one is that of the, you know, what they call the charismatic CEO. They bring someone in is going to have a great idea, and he's going to bring us into the future. So this guy, this gentleman, is Dan Price. He's the CEO of this company, uh, Synergy, uh, Gravity Payments. He commissioned a study. See a pattern there? And the study determined that happiness is set at a salary of $17,000. So what he did was um, he... From overnight, he changed the minimum salary in his organization to $70,000. That means that if you're a receptionist that makes $20,000 a year, a $50,000 increase is a phenomenal occurrence in your life. If you're a designer who makes $57,000, well, $70,000 is a substantial raise overnight. If you're an exec who makes $100,000, there's nothing in it for you, and you're gonna be resentful, because you don't get what other people get. So the charismatic CEO, while well-intentioned, doesn't necessarily lead to a great future. Then there is the innovation model. We take a room, we take toys, we take money, we throw them at people, and we say, now have an idea. And it doesn't matter where you come from. In fact, if you come from somewhere else, it's even better. You're supposed to look at my business model without really understanding it, without understanding what I do and the history of what I do, and come up with ideas. And so the, the interesting thing is that innovation labs don't always fail, but, it, but what they produce tends tend to be one hit wonders. And it's more because, um, you know, strikes of luck than real science behind it. And then there is every organization's favorite, the consulting model, right? So you go out, you know, we couldn't do it inside, we couldn't, uh, you know, the innovation lab failed, let's get someone who can tell us what to do. And so you start, you know, first, maybe you get the ones that don't cost too much, then you get, you know, the ones, the progressively bigger guns. And if you look at that stuff, you realize that you get the same PowerPoint. It's only the color that changes generally, (laughs) and they're sold by the kilo. So (laughs) I shouldn't say this. The biggest problem with the consultancy model is that so some of these people are really, really good, and you know, they come in, and they augment your capacity, and they do research, and they get to know your customers really well, and they have some really wonderful idea. I mean, this is their specialism. This is what these people do. And then, so they design this beautiful thing, and then they give you the specifications of what you have to do, and they move on to the next engagement, And what happens then is that the knowledge of the customer, the understanding of the problem, the understanding of the solution, and the history of all the work that they've done goes out the door with them. So you can hire one or two, but you cannot hire the entirety of McKinsey or Accenture or Fjord or what it is. And so you lose lose expertise, understanding, and uh, nothing ever gets um, transmitted. Why does this happen? Because if I see it, if you understand it, why can not organization act in a different way? So I've heard many explanations of this phenomenon, but the best one I heard uh, just recently at um, a conference in Turkey, of all places. Um, A lot of you, I'm sure, are familiar with a book that we all claim to have, and we all claim to have read, and I don't know anybody who actually has in its entirety, thinking fast and slow, Daniel Kahneman, right? I really don't know, Does anybody has anybody read it in its entirety? Oh wow, I'm impressed. I'm impressed, that's very good. Uh, so Daniel Kahneman talks about system one and system two, cognitive ease, System one, where we move on autopilot, uh, where, you know, decisions and actions are automatic, where we don't really have to put a lot of um, effort into switching into gear. And system two, that he defines as cognitive strain, is where we focus very intently and we're intentional about the things that we do. Now, system two is actually... Really stressful for the body if we had we like to think that we operate in system 2 and that we're intentional and that we're You know thoughtful about the things that we do, but if we really were as Defined by system 2 as we think we are we would be balls of stress and ready to explode You know on a regular basis the reality is that we look for Solutions that we can recognize. We tend to think in a very binary way. It's what we call, you know, cognitive biases, you know, heuristics, rule of thumb. So if someone has done what we're trying to do and has followed these kind of models, well, you know, that means that that's a good thing. Are you calling BS or just coughing? <laughs> you know, just checking. Um, <laughs> So the, the, I mean, the, the reality is that heuristics feel on this, you know, kind of like really binary uh, set of assumptions. So we we like to find it's very it, it's, it's not easy, but it, it's definitely more comfortable to find correlations between events, and um, and then call it a day. So companies do exactly the same things. Oh, if. Bank XYZ have used McKinsey, we should use McKinsey too because X person has rescued them from, you know, a government bailout, et etc. et cetera. Or like in this photo, that person uh, learned to do math at, or to read at age four, then she must be smart, then her GPA will be high. We function in that way, in this way. So when it comes to people, the same automatic reaction scales up when we think about the people that we have in organizations, right? So there is this really interesting experiment that was done in the 60s by a psychologist called McGregor um, who um, you know, asks manager to go into other managers' meetings and listen to how they talk to people and how they talk about people. And so what you find out is that the same assumption mechanism comes into play. A lot of time, the perception of managers, and that's why organizations develop the processes that they develop, is that people need to be controlled. People need to be told what to do. People are stupid. People are lazy. People need to be directed strictly. Um... In reality, uh, so he calls that Theory X. In reality, McGregor um, maintains that people find pleasure in work, that um, they are self-directed, that they're interested, they have an investment in the things that you do. And so if we were to switch to a management model that encourages ownership and... um, And accountability for the work, and freedom of action and decision for the work that we do, we would have much different results. The reality is that most organizations, uh, because, again, we work in System 1 for most of the time, and so uh, organizations are collections of people, function on the basis of assumptions. And uh, we develop mechanisms a little bit like this. If you say that you can't trust people, you will uh, look at their actions and develop some beliefs. So the underlying is I cannot trust people. I look at, you know, Ash sitting here with his legs crossed. I'm assuming that he is resting. He's not paying attention, so he is lazy, right? I'm observing his his actions, and I develop a belief. Sorry to call on you, but you're right there. I could say, see, Ruth is she's drawing. She's busy. Uh, so I jump to a conclusion that all people are lazy, and so I will have to put a mechanism into place. Because I have interpreted reality, and then from that point on, I choose, I select the reality I want to see, and on and on and on. This is called a ladder of inference. And we, on the basis of these inferences, we develop systems that are designed to address this type of perceived problems. I really like this... um, This caption is part of a cartoon called Up the Organization. Um, It's Robert Townsend, who is fantastic. And I'll read you the the whole quote that says, "Uh, people don't hate work. It's as natural as rest or play. They don't have to be forced or threatened. If they commit themselves to mutual objectives, they'll drive themselves more effectively than you can drive them. But they'll commit themselves only to the extent that they can see ways of satisfying their ego and development needs. Now, if this doesn't remind you of something that in design we love to talk about very much, which is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you need to have one of it. I haven't seen it today at any other talk in the presentation, so I thought I would put, you know, I, I would just, this would be my contributions. But fundamentally, McGregor and Maslow agrees that human beings, in order to be, Fulfilled once they have satisfied their basic need for food, shelter, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, have a, a higher drive to fulfill um, intellectually and emotionally. And so, if we create systems that organizational system where this higher emotional and intellectual need isn't fulfilled of course we're going to need to create control so that people will stay there all day long putting together parts for this clicker or for the steering wheel on your car. This is made... So imagine if this type of scenario of control was mind-numbing in organizations um, where you made things. So for the the Industrial Revolution, this is when all these theories were uh, developed. Right now, we don't do that kind of work anymore. We don't do production work. We do knowledge work. And knowledge work, by its own nature, is non-deterministic. And that means that, non-deterministic means that a lot of time is spent searching for information. So you know, it's the knowledge. And then uh, we don't know what the end result of that process is. When we go into research, you know, you may go with some ideas, some assumptions, some hypotheses, but you really don't know what you're going to find, right? It's a little bit like coming to this talk. You didn't know what you were going to hear. That's non-deterministic. And the reality is that we work in systems that are complex and they are adaptive. And, they you know, complex adaptive systems are non-deterministic, but, you know, they're also organizations that are not they're not the equal of the sum of the properties of the elements that, that compose them, but they have emergent properties that are unique. So us here in a room, we're, you know, in this conference, we are uh, a complex adaptive system with properties that have nothing to do with the accumulation of all our uh, properties. They're unique. So if one of us gets away from the system, it will change. Now, there is a really good definition about, of what a system is, and it comes from someone who, unfortunately, is dead, Russell Aikoff. He's one of the fathers of systems thinking, and he talks about exactly what I was saying. He says that a system is more than the sum of its parts. And he gave a talk... Um, that was fundamental to drive this concept home. And that for me has a fundamental relevance in how we look at the people that we bring into the organizations we're part of to do transformation. Let's just take a simple
0: example. I read in the New York Times recently that 457 different automobiles are available in the United States. Let's buy one of each and bring it into a large garage. Let's then hire 200 of the best automotive engineers in the world and ask them to determine which car has the best engine. Suppose they come back and say the Rolls-Royce has the best engine. You make a note of it. Which one has the best transmission, we ask them, and they go and run the tests and come back and say the Mercedes does. Which one has the best battery? Come back and say the Buick does. And one by one, for every part required for an automobile, they tell us which is the best one available. Now we take that list, give it back to them, and say, Remove those parts from those cars, put them together into the best possible automobile. Because now we'll have an automobile consisting of all the best parts. What do we get? You don't even get an automobile. For the obvious reason, the parts don't fit. The performance of the system depends on how the parts fit, not how they act taken
1: separately. So. Think about this, and then think about the places where you work. Think about the hiring process. Think about how you form teams, right? So we want the people with the best talent, right? We want the best that the market has to offer. And we take all these people, and we put them in a team or in an organization, and we expect them to fit and to function. And so that's hard enough. When you are in a deterministic system and you have a thing with clear specifications on what to make, imagine being in a non-deterministic system where you there is this high degree of uncertainty and ambiguity. How do you deal with that? And why does that happen? Well, why it happens is because... Our execs, our bosses, this is what they hear, right? And this is what they subscribe. And it's not their fault. That's what they think is the right thing to do. You know, they they say people are our most important asset, which is really true. It all begins to talent. It is true. We need to win the war for talent I'm not so sure about, although I'm a ruthless negotiator uh, for hiring, But there's nothing that says uh, anything about fit. And then when you get these people in organizations, so um, we we need to plot them. You know, we need to find a spot for them, and we need to plot them onto a matrix. And so we look at performance versus potential, which is something that um, uh, Karina and, I'm sorry, I don't remember, Nova were talking about. You know, will versus ability to do things. And we decide how we invest on people and um, on the basis of where they are on this, um, on this matrix. So if you're there, clearly high, um, high potential and high performance, it's very clear that the investment is gonna be there. But if you're here, do we stop and ask why you're, we map you there? We hired you after, after all. You know, we thought that you're, um, you were top talent. Now, is that a matter of fit? Is that a matter of you not being good enough for the role? Did we make a mistake? You know, we don't stop to think about that. You know, we expect you to be part of that innovation lab that transform us, or the you know the strategy team, or we go out again to consultants that then give recommendations like this. You know, they create this beautiful pyramids of talent, and they say this is where you focus your uh, your efforts. Uh, these are the people that, um, uh, the, the groups of employees that the senior management needs to focus on. Uh, and so, so we develop these people, we develop the crap out of these people, and we end up with teams where everybody scores goals, but there is no goalie, there's no goaltender we end up with organizations that cannot play a rugby match or a football match because everybody looks the same. Clearly, those teams fail. And it's a good thing because we all know that learning comes from failure. So the question is, how do we create organizations that are arranged around this concept of learning, not necessarily from failure, but where we take the things that we now know and we avoid repeating the same mistakes, where we can contextualize what we understand about what's the context outside and reality inside, and we make sure that the organization can move on. You know, systems thinking looks at how... Organizations learn how systems grow, how the um, combination of parts contributes to the goal and affects the goal. What are the unintended consequences? What is we heard we heard this term quite a bit today? Uh, what is the waste and value cycle? What does it look like? And there is this personal commitment to mastering things, to understanding what happens. So. I work for a large organization and I tried, I don't have a solution, but I have had numerous conversations with colleagues across, uh, you know, across the world um, about how, how do you solve that? You know, what do you need to look for? How do you put together an organization that is able to change because it's able to learn from um, its own history and from the people that they bring in? And so we looked at... You know, we looked at intent. If you think about an organization, intent is the foundation of everything. Ford was born because someone wanted to make cars. Kodak because someone wanted to make um, uh, to, to make f- uh, photo accessible to consumers. So, if we look at what the organizational goal is what the team goal might be in our teams and what the individual goals. So, Making photos, team goal is to develop a uh, way to make photos without a film. An individual goal, I am a um, digital, I'm an engineer and so I wanna make this thing possible. The magic happens right when all intents overlap and when there is an alignment. Now, the reality is that not all organizations are geared up to support this. But there is this really um, great book that just came out uh, earlier this year called um, An Organization for Everyone that looks at the uh, organizations that become or are deliberately developmental. Um, So they talk about uh, the ideal organization having this. Three lenses. Uh, so the edge is where you know you look at your challenges. You know what you want to be, how you're going, um, how you're going to grow up, how are you going to learn. You've got the home, which is where you know, which is a community. It's where you find support, where you can go. Uh, to your point, Nova and Corina, you were talking about being able to learn and help each other learn. You would go into a home. Um, groove and then the groove is where you build the practice where you've got your knowledge where you've got your expertise and granted it's not you know it's it's fairly radical I can imagine going to you know my employer it's a big bank um, and tell them oh you know we need to start talking about homes and grooves and edges and they would look at me like this but but it's a really sound idea focusing on the people focusing on that intersection of all the things that make change learning and therefore change possible i'm also a really big fan remember that pyramid of the four groups that you are supposed to focus on well the same person eventually had a come come to jesus moment and developed this matrix of um you know the, the leadership dna i really really like it uh, and it talks about the five rules that we should um, focus on to make sure that... I like all the... Ca- I'll, share, I'll share the slides, guys, so you don't need to take photos. <laughs> so it looks at how, you know, uh, at organizations along the axis of time and of focus. So you've got from individual... Uh, it doesn't look... It doesn't show. Individual to organizational, and then near-term operational and more strategic. And it looks at... at you know, how leadership can help an organization learn and change. So you look at the shaping the future, making things happen, engaging the people that you have today and developing them, building the next generation for tomorrow. And really important at the very center is this this idea of taking care of yourself. Um, Nowhere here it talks about consultants. Nowhere it talks about process. The focus has to be... On the people. Now um, he also talked about um, talent. You know, we, we looked at talent as our capital. What, you know, what is going to bring us um, into the next stage uh, of the organization? Now talent is can be expressed as an equation uh, for uh, Ulrich. So he he talks about competence, time, commitment, times, contribution. So the right person at the right time, in the right place, with the right skills. A commitment, so a value proposition that goes beyond what we're going to do as an organization. But on a personal level, what am I going to get versus what I'm expected to give? So there is this idea of mutual exchange. And then the contribution, which is more about... Um, sense of identity, purpose, the work itself. Now, we're a bit, we're really good as designers, uh, in creating visualizations for uh, you know all the tools and the processes and the things that we do. You know, we make these really beautiful artifacts. That are very colorful, and our clients think that we're doing a lot of very valuable work. This is, for instance, is one visualization of um, all the artifacts and tools that you can use in service design. I really like it. But when we're designing an organization, what artifacts do we create? How do we express that? You know, do we create um, Excel spreadsheets? You know, that that really sp- those really speak to the soul of an organization. Um, so, fortunately, there are people, there are designers that think about this stuff really hard. And um, a friend of mine, he's in Italy. His name is uh, Marco Calzolari. Has thought about an artifact for talent. With the, but he he shares it with the explicit footnote that the purpose of the artifact is to ma- uh, of the artifact is to make itself redundant. Uh, and so this is this is his talent canvas right and it's um, he cons- He calls it a vehicle to drive those conversations that are going to enable us to create a talent pool and create an organization where talent fits and where um, you know where you can foster learning and so if you I took his map, so he knows I uses his canvas quite liberally and um I took this map and I started mapping it against, and we started mapping it against several axes. So if you remember the leadership DNA had this continuum from individual to organizational and from, it was on the axis of time. Here, if you look at the more individual versus public, you're going to be able to have conversations and map overlaps between what the goal of an individual is, so the autonomous um, uh, the autonomous being and what the system that the, that individual works in. And you can have conversations about that. But you can also map it around, you know, because you're mapping along the axis of time, you know, you can look at the hindsight, what this person brings to the organization, and you can overlap it to what your strategy is. So what is your foresight? Where are you going? Where do you want to go? And again, when you, you know, it's at that crossing of foresight, uh, of hindsight and foresight, that you get your insight. You understand what this person can give to you, what you can learn. So when you are putting all of this together to create that magic that really is going to help you transform, that's really going to take you to the next step. I decided to run a little experiment and try to take the talent equation, give it some color, and map it on this conversational canvas. And this is what I got, you know, you can really see where you have your different areas. You can put things in context, because as humans, we need a context to be able to operate in and to derive meaning. And um, and we're experimenting with different ways of conducting this conversation, of tweaking the canvas because it's open source, and help us put create that fit that organizations so desperately need. And for those of you who were in the workshop that Martina and I had yesterday, actually part of this conversation feed also into uh, mapping of teams in terms of skills because, of course, works need to be done, so you need specific skills. It allows you to, to get a view of what your, where your teams are at in terms of soft and hard skills, so what your organization needs to move forward. Project what you might need in the future, and then if you look at individuals, um, you can see how this person wants to learn something, doesn't know very much doesn't have a, a whole lot of skills, uh, but she can be helped or he can be helped by, by other people. And you create that fit, not just on a personal level, but also on, on a professional level. And you're gonna end up, if you do this, you're gonna end up with a team that has all the players that play all the roles that allow you to win that battle. So, in conclusion, um, at UX Scotland, where I gave this talk um, about a month back, Dana Chisnell said this that when people don't understand how their own organization works, they're back, uh, they will back themselves into a corner and will not participate. And I think that this is super, super true. If we really want to do transformation, forget the digital we need to focus on the people. And the things that you want to remember are that everything is connected and you should always consider the system, that you cannot innovate in isolation, so no chucking money at people in a glass room, bring them into your work. You, You need to look at diversity, you need to have fit, and you can only have fit when the parts of the system are different and diverse you need to really support this idea of the learning organization. You need to be deliberate and intentional about that. You need to be transparent and you need to let people take charge and be autonomous and give them a chance to succeed and to fail so they can learn. And when work has meaning is happy work and people are really happy. And this, you know, for a lot of us, this is work. But it's really meaningful to me, and so I'm really happy to have shared this with you today. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed
0: this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.